Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about melanoma with Dr. Harriet Kluger. Dr. Kluger is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Harriet, you know, I thought that we would kind of dive right into the treatment of melanoma. We've talked a lot on this show about melanoma being one of the most deadly uh, skin cancers. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about um, how we have traditionally treated uh, melanoma and um, where things might be going? Yes, sure. So when we think about oncologic treatments, there are three major categories. You can you can take a, a cancer out, so surgery, you can do radiation, or you can give what we call systemic therapy, which is therapy that's given by mouth or by IV. The vast majority of melanomas are actually discovered really early on when people see a changing mole or a dermatologist might find one on a routine skin exam. Most of the melanomas are then excised, in other words, taken out, and nothing further needs to be done and patients are simply observed. Every so often patients come in without ever knowing that they had a melanoma in the skin. So it's a melanoma that has spread beyond the primary site, or they might have had a primary melanoma that was removed years ago, but a few cells escaped and are now developing into tumors in other locations in the body. What I do in my clinic is treat with systemic therapy. So things that are administered by mouth or by IV, so they go all over the body. And that's what we're going to talk about primarily today. You know, one of the questions that a lot of patients have is when they have that phenomenon, metastatic melanoma, so the melanoma has escaped, it's gone to other parts of the body, where surgery really can't remove the the, the melanoma itself and where you're treating with systemic therapy, People wonder about the prognosis and whether, in fact, they can ever be, quote, cancer-free. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So when I started treating patients with metastatic melanoma in 2001, if somebody had their cancer that had spread beyond the, the skin and into the internal organs, we would have a frank conversation with the patient and say, we're really sorry, Mr. or Mrs. Jones. This is an incurable disease, and on average, people live between 6 and 12 months. You should start getting your affairs in order, and we will do what we can and hope for the best. At the time, we had a chemotherapy called decarpazine and an immunotherapy called high-dose interleukin-2, which was very difficult to administer. The decarpazine might have shrunk the tumors temporarily for a few weeks, and the high-dose interleukin-2 would result in actual cure, but in a very small percentage of patients, perhaps four or five percent. Newer therapies were then developed after that, and by 2005 or six, we were seeing that the median survival was actually in the order of one year. At present, we don't actually even know what the median survival is, and when a patient comes in and asks what the prognosis is, I say at least 50 percent chance that we're going to have prolonged survival and um, a prolonged disease-free period. 
but I can't actually tell people if the cancer is ever going to come back. We do believe that we are actually curing a, a subset of patients who have metastatic melanoma, including people who've had a lot, who have a lot of disease and disease that's gone to vital organs such as the liver, the lungs, and the brain. And so when you say prolonged disease-free survival, I mean, I'm assuming that you mean more than days or weeks and maybe even more than a few years. Is that right? Absolutely. So when we started using the first of the newer immune therapies, a drug called ipilimumab, or Yervoy is the commercial name, we started using it in around 2005 or six. We still have patients who were treated in those years who have never required additional treatment and are disease-free and living their lives. Now, I can't say for sure that it's never going to be a problem, but the chances are that it's not going to be a problem over a decade later. So yes, we're talking about years. You know, we've talked a little bit on this show about immune therapy for a variety of cancers, but it seems that in metastatic melanoma, it really seems to be incredibly effective, especially when you look at how far we've come since, you know, when you started in 2001 telling people that they had less than a year um, and to get their affairs in order. Why is it that immune therapy seems to work so well in melanoma, but may not work as well in other cancers? Oh, that's an excellent question. So melanoma by nature tends to have more mutations than many other tumors. Uh, it's, a, for the most part, a sun-exposed malignancy. So this, the sun will cause damage in many, many genes. And because of the multiple mutations, there are a lot of immune cells that recognize these, uh, these cancer cells as foreign or bad. And with time, they get exhausted, and these newer drugs will stimulate them. But we probably have a larger repertoire of immune cells in melanoma than most other cancers, and that's why they respond better. And I think another interesting point to um, uh, to make over here is that there are two other types of skin cancers. There's a fairly rare skin cancer called Merkel cell carcinoma, which also has a fair number of mutations and also sun-related. Um, and metastatic squamous cell carcinomas also will respond very well to immunotherapy, better than many other tumor types, where we might see response, but not for many, many years, as we see in melanoma. Uh, but we do think it's related to the tumor mutation burden or the number of mutations that these cells have. And so as you think about immunotherapy, I mean, you mentioned that the first generation of these um, was actually brought into uh, practice in 2005, 2006. Have we developed newer forms of immunotherapy since then? And and what's the prognosis looking now? What are some of the exciting developments that have happened over the more recent time? Yes, so there are many exciting um, developments. So the first drug, the ipilimumab or Eurovoy, was brought into the clinic in trials in those years, but it actually took many years to achieve FDA approval. It was only FDA approved for metastatic melanoma in 2011. So the first one, ipilimumab, results in nice tumor regression, possibly cures in maybe 10% of patients. The second generation drug is a drug uh, that targets a molecule called PD-1, which stands for program death one. There were two that were um, first given to patients with melanoma 
Nivolumab and Pembrolizumab, also known as Updevo and Keytruda. Subsequently, many other companies have developed drugs that inhibit PD-1. And this one seemed to be the better target for the immunotherapy. So when we give this to melanoma patients, instead of seeing nice responses in maybe 10% of patients, we'll see good responses in 30 to 40% of patients. Um, and, and interestingly, this is less toxic. So the second generation was both more effective and less toxic than the first generation. Then the question asked uh, in around 2009, when we already had a little bit of experience with these PD-1 inhibitors, was what would happen if we give the two drugs together? So these two classes of drugs target non-redundant pathways in the immune cell and its interaction with cancer cells. So if we, if we inhibit at two different places, in theory, we'll get enhanced activation of our chief immune cell, which is called a T cell. And indeed, this was the case. When we give the two together in melanoma, we now see very nice responses in excess of 55% of patients. So the two together is better than either one alone. Just just to clarify, when you say the two together, you mean ipilimumab and pembrolizumab? For the most part, the studies have used ipilimumab and nivolumab simply okay. because both of these drugs were developed by the same company. But yes, it's been given with pembrolizumab as well. But not nivolumab and pembrolizumab, which both target PD-1. Correct. There's no point in giving two drugs that inhibit the same target concurrently. So by that point, did we switch all of our patients to dual therapy? Actually, no, because remember, some of the patients do very well with monotherapy. So 30, 40% will do well with the one drug, the PD-1 inhibitor. So we're trying very hard to select those patients who are more likely to respond to one drug and also patients who might not be able to tolerate extensive toxicity. The toxicities are the main problem. Depends where the patient lives, how socially and economically robust they are, whether they're associated with a healthcare system that can support extensive toxicities. Um, but when we have patients who've got aggressive disease and particularly young patients with no other medical problems, we do start off with the two drugs up front. Um, there are other people in the melanoma field who might start with one and then add the second one if the first one alone does not work. So a lot of refinement of these regimens still needs to be done. And there are many studies looking at how much to give, when to give, what sequence, etc. cetera. Uh, it takes years to sort all of this out. I also want to add that we now have a third target that is looking very promising in melanoma. There's a target called LAG3, it's, a, it's, it's an antigen that's expressed on these same immune cells or T cells. And when you give inhibitors of LAG3 together with PD-1 inhibitors, it does appear that it's going to be better than PD-1 inhibitors alone. The data are still very new and more maturity of the data is going to be required. In other words, we need to follow patients for much longer to make sure that it actually holds up. Wow. So um, so clinical trials for that drug are currently ongoing, is that right? Correct. It's already um, in a phase three study, which has completed uh, accrual. And the first data do suggest that the two drugs are better than, than nivolumab alone. And, and has anybody thought about adding IPI? Um, yes, we, there again, we'll run into problems with side effects, and we have to be very yeah. careful when we mix three drugs. And yes, this takes a long time to work all of this out. 
And so, you know, it sounds like with now the the three kind of tiers of immunotherapy that you're talking about, um, upwards of 55, maybe even close to 65, 75% of patients might have prolonged disease-free survival? Well, we don't know yet about the 65, 75%. That's what we're, that's what we're shooting for. And ultimately, we're going to shoot for 100%. Um, I also want to add that this is just one type of immune therapy. We call it immune checkpoint inhibitors. So the checkpoint refers to a negative regulator of the immune cells. And that's what these drugs target. There are various other types of cellular manipulations that we can give to activate the immune system against cancer. But the immune checkpoint inhibitor specifically refers to molecules on immune cells and cancer cells that have crosstalk. They talk to each other and the cancer cell will suppress an immune cell so that it, so, so that it remains alive. Um, so this is just one approach to immunotherapy for cancer. Well, we certainly want to find out more about the other approaches to immune therapy. We talk a lot on this show about uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, but certainly thinking about other ways that we can use and manipulate the immune system to fight metastatic melanoma um, will be very exciting to learn about. But first, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about melanoma with my guest, Dr. Harriet Kluger. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital. Fifteen care centers offer access to oncologists committed to providing patients with cancer and blood diseases individualized, innovative care. Find a Smilo Care Center near you at YaleCancerCenter.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Harriet Kluger. We're talking about melanoma and T-cells. And Harriet, right before the break, we were talking about these tremendous advances that have happened in the treatment of metastatic melanoma for anyone who just joined us. Harriet was mentioning that when she started treating metastatic melanoma back in 2001, Prognosis wasn't great, six months, 12 months, but we've now had a series of immune therapies, particularly with checkpoint inhibitors, um, that have really improved the disease-free survival, now getting prolonged survival in over 50% of patients. But Harriet, right before the break, you left us with this little teaser that there may be other ways to manipulate the immune system that are now being investigated that might hold promise in metastatic melanoma. So tell us more. 
Thank you, Anise. So yes, absolutely. We have a few teasers and that's what makes this field so exciting. Um, so one of the additional classes of therapies that we give is cellular therapies. So for melanoma or solid tumors, we know that we have these immune cells that live within the tumor, but and they keep trying to fight the tumor, but at some point they get exhausted and they're no longer capable of getting rid of tumor cells. So many years ago at the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Rosenberg, Steve Rosenberg, pioneered a treatment modality whereby he would resect a tumor and then break up all the different cellular components, sort them, and take the T cells that were that originated from within the tumor and grow them in a Petri dish and make billions and billions of cells. Then in the meanwhile, he'd bring a patient back and give them high doses of chemotherapy to make space, if you will, for these newer cells that were growing in the Petri dish and actually are educated to recognize the tumor. Then he would infuse those into the patient after the chemotherapy and after the space was made and then give some growth factor called interleukin-2 and then cells then patients would recover and go home. And there is a subset of patients who are actually cured from this therapy as well. It's similar to having a bone marrow transplant. You go in for a one-time shot for a few weeks, and then you go home and live your life. The initial response rates at the National Cancer Institute were in the order of 50%. Now, with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, we're seeing lower response rates simply because many of the patients whose tumors are immune-sensitive are actually cured by the checkpoints that we discussed in the previous um, session over here. But still, they work, and we have patients who are cured now from the cellular therapies after, after they haven't responded to the immune checkpoint inhibitors. So that gives patients another option. By the way, this treatment is now being studied in other cancers as well, lung cancer, head and neck cancer, cervical cancer, and so on, and responses are being seen there too. In the meanwhile, this, the field has moved forward and the cellular therapy is no longer only given at the National Cancer Institute. In fact, at Yale, we have a lab that can manufacture these cells. There are also companies that will that, that are trying to commercialize this modality. So you send the tumor to the company, they grow the cells for you, they send them back, and we give the treatment in the hospital. Uh, so that is something that likely will also be on the menu of options within a year or so for metastatic melanoma and in the future for other tumor types. So Harriet, just um, picking up on that, when we think about, you know, things like bone marrow transplant or other transplants, anytime we're thinking about putting cells into somebody, um, we always worry about rejection. So do I have it correct that what we're actually doing in this cellular therapy is taking a patient's own tumor, taking finding their own T cells and getting those T cells to grow and replicate and giving the patient back their own T cells so that there's less risk of rejection. Is that right? That's right. There's actually no risk of rejection. The rejection only happens when you give somebody another person's immune cells. But in this case, we're talking about giving a patient back their own cells, just amplified to the, to the tune of billions of cells, so that these are the special cells that recognize the tumor and can then work against the tumor. And so, um, so one would think that um, if you know, some people think that your immune system should, 
is fighting off cancers all the time and that people have, you know, quote, cancer floating around in them and that your immune system kind of fights all of these little um, deformed cells off so that you don't actually develop a cancer. If that was true, then why wouldn't this therapy work for everybody um, and we wouldn't need the checkpoint inhibitors anymore? So that is actually true. I think the problem is that when we give the cellular therapy, sometimes patients have many different tumors in different locations. And we already know now that melanomas can metastasize. So it is correct that they all start from the same clone of cells within the skin. Then they metastasize internally and you get subclones and daughter clones and granddaughter clones and so on. And those um, next generation clones might have different mutations. Now, if we remove a tumor to generate the immune cells from one location, we might th these cells might not be active against the tumors in a, in a different location. So that's one reason that it might not work. Other reasons for failure are um, inability to grow the cells in the lab. So not everybody's cells grow. The vast majority do, but there's about 10-15% that do not grow. Um, and sometimes they just don't grow enough to, to substantial quantities and it's just insufficient to overcome the tumor cells that are actually there. And this whole concept um, of, you know, taking cells, kind of sorting them out, finding the T cells, growing them up in a Petri dish, giving them back to the patient, it sounds um, really uh uh, like a major production. And so whenever we think about major productions in medicine, I always think about how much does that cost and does insurance cover it? Well, that's an excellent question. So at present, it's still experimental. So the company that's making the cells for us in our current clinical trial covers the cost of it. Um, the National Cancer Institute, when they used to do it, it was free. It was, sub it was covered by the government, essentially, the taxpayer. But you are right, it is very expensive. I think we also need to keep in mind that the immune checkpoint inhibitors are similarly expensive. And those can also cost hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient. So if you start adding up the hundreds of thousands of dollars and you compare it to maybe $200,000, $300,000 for a one-time therapy such as cellular therapy, it's not all that different in terms of order of magnitude. It actually might be a little bit less expensive, if anything. And so getting back to the checkpoint inhibitors, those are generally covered by insurance now, aren't they? They are, yes, correct. Other than the experimental ones, the ones that are approved are covered. All right, good. So it sounds to me like, you know, when you have a patient with metastatic melanoma, your first uh, line of therapy is the immune checkpoint inhibitors. If they fail that, cellular therapy is another option. Um, what if they fail that? So if they fail that, or sometimes by choice, we actually have additional experimental options for patients. So I had talked about the T cells that recognize the tumor. Um, those are called um, adaptive immune cells. In other words, they've adapted to the cancer. They have special, specific qualities that recognize that. We also have innate immune cells. Those are generalized cells that are floating around in our bodies that have not developed receptors that recognize specific abnormalities in cancer cells. Now, those innate immune cells are another whole army of cells that we can activate 
in order to target the cancer. And sometimes we can co-activate the innate immune cells and the adaptive cells. So we can combine additional drugs to these immune checkpoint inhibitors. There are many approaches that are being taken across the country. One of the approaches that we're doing uh, over here is to activate a group of cells called dendritic cells that that actually present the antigen, the tumor antigen, to the T cells as foreign and then make them become educated or adapted. Um, so if we give those two together, we might have better responses than using the checkpoint inhibitors alone. So that's one example of an approach. There are groups that are targeting a, a, a subset of cells called macrophages, which are also innate immune cells. And then we need to think about what these cells do. So they, they secrete um, substances called cytokines. Interleukin-2, that early drug that I had mentioned that was approved already in the 1990s, is a type of a cytokine. Many companies are now developing novel cytokines, uh, so either better versions of interleukin-2 that bind to the interleukin-2 receptors that are more important or that, that bind um, with, with a stronger affinity to the receptors. And then there are other interleukin interleukins that are made by, the, by our cells. So you can have interleukin-12, interleukin-18, interleukin-15. All of these are being looked at as drug targets. And in fact, there's a researcher at Yale, Aaron Ring, who has developed a drug um, that is a mimic of interleukin-18 that doesn't get sucked up by decoy proteins in the body, so should be more potent. And we will be excited to study that in the next month or two in the clinic. There's a trial that's opening up, and we will be administering that drug to patients who have not responded to the immune checkpoint inhibitors, both with melanoma and other diseases. So, Harriet, I, just to unpack a couple of the concepts that you mentioned, it sounds to me like um, the activation of both the innate and the adaptive immune system just makes intuitive sense. If you have more um, adaptive immune cells and, and you pair that with more cells that are presenting to them the antigens that they need to go after, it seems like that would be a better approach. So is that something that is routinely being done or is the cellular therapies that we were talking about earlier really going after more of those adaptive cells? And wouldn't it be better if they could also grow up in a Petri dish, a patient's innate uh, T cells as well? Um, well, we can grow it up in a Petri dish or in the body. So the whole concept behind giving cytokines is to grow them actually in the human. So we give more of the cytokines and we grow up both the innate and the adaptive cells. So these are like growth factors for these cells. They should make them propagate. Right. So that was going to be my next question is you talk about all of these cytokines, these interleukins with various numbers. You know, how, how exactly do they work? It's, so it sounds now like they just stimulate the innate uh, immune system. Is that right? Both innate and adaptive, actually. So they stimulate both. Um, so the, the, all of those different numbers reflect molecules that have different activities. So some of them will stimulate innate cells, some stimulate um, the adaptive cells, some stimulate suppressor cells. The biology is getting more and more complicated. Um, well, it's always been complicated. We're just learning now how complicated it is. And every time we look, we discover that we knew nothing. 
And so so it sounds like we're almost coming full circle, though, because interleukin, too, was something that you had talked about at the very outset, which really wasn't terribly effective back then. Why would we think that now these other interleukins will be more effective? So it wasn't effective by itself. Now we have other bullets to administer with it. And we understand better how to engineer them so that they can be more effective. So the idea is that you would use these interleukins along with cellular therapy and or checkpoint inhibitors? Yes, or if they're so good, we might be able to use them alone. Time will tell. When you have a new drug, you start studying it by itself, mainly because you want to look at whether it's toxic, but you also look a little bit at the activity. So some of them might end up being active on their own. We will see. Dr. Harriet Kluger is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.